Good evening, everyone. Hope you all are doing well tonight. Thank you for coming to study the word together and uh, to join together in prayer. And I hope tonight is a blessing and encouragement to you. Uh, Let's bow before the Lord and pray and ask him to bless our time together this evening. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for how gracious and merciful you are to us. Lord, this is a beautiful day, and we want to give you thanks for providing it for us and just for the opportunity to gather together tonight. Lord, we have come together as your people to honor you, uh, to encourage one another as the people of God, uh, to join together in prayer and to bring our concerns before your throne. Uh, Lord, we've come to open uh, the treasure house of wisdom of your word and to learn from it tonight. So, Father, I pray that you would bless this time. May your spirit illumine the word as we seek to understand it. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Tonight we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and I've called it Wisdom, Work, and What is Worthwhile. And if we remember in Ecclesiastes, the guiding question going all the way back to chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 is in a world that is marked by enigma, frustration, and futility, where can a person find profit? That is, where can human beings find meaning in this finite life under the sun? That is the guiding question of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. And so everything that he investigates, everything that he looks at is looked at through that question, does this provide ultimate meaning in life, ultimate gain, ultimate profit? And so over the last couple of times that we've met together, uh, we looked at the wisdom of Solomon pursuing wisdom. Is this where we find ultimate gain? Ultimately, his conclusion was no, if wisdom is the end goal. So if wisdom in and of itself is what we are seeking after, then it will not provide the ultimate profit, the ultimate gain that we're looking for. Uh, what about pleasure? The last time we, were, we met together in the beginning of chapter 2, Solomon was pursuing pleasure, um, just pleasure itself in terms of the luxuries and delicacies that this world has to offer, but also throwing himself into projects and building beautiful things. Is that where we find ultimate gain, ultimate profit? And again, he says, no, ultimately, this is not where we find it. And then tonight, we come to chapter 2, verses 12 to 26, where he looks at wisdom and folly again, and this time more in a compare and contrast between the two, and also looking at our labor and whether or not it can produce us uh, produce any sense of reward or, or profit or gain. And so in, he's going to be looking at the comparison of wisdom and folly and their reward. And also, uh, is there any reward for our labor? And so in the opening of this passage in verses 12 to 16, he's going to come to the conclusion that wisdom is better than folly but there's more that he wants to tell us about that. So he says in verse number 12, 
He says, then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? Now, we've seen already in Ecclesiastes back in chapter 1, as well as the early part of chapter 2, that he's already investigated wisdom. So what is he doing here then when he says, I turned my attention? Literally, he says, I, I turned and looked at wisdom and madness and folly. So he's turning his attention to it again. And in this particular passage, he seems to be setting them up side by side, looking to see whether there's any value in one over the other. And if there's any really any reward or gain from either wisdom or foolishness. And then he asked this question at the end of verse 12 that has really puzzled both translators and commentators on this verse. What does this question mean? The most literal way of saying this question from the Hebrew is, um, what more the man than which already they have done it. What does that mean? So uh, the NIV has tr chosen to translate it here, uh, the king's successor. Uh, literally, it's what more the man after the king. And so they've said it's the successor. So then what about the second part? Then what they have already done it. What does that mean? And there's a couple different ways of, of seeing this, and both of them have to do with the person who follows the king. And one way of understanding it is, here I have set you an example of pursuing wisdom and of looking at all of these things. So I would hope that my successor would also see the importance of seeking wisdom and following in the path that I have set. But maybe a better way of understanding, especially in the context, is um, the, here he is considering the possibility that the successor, the person who comes after him, will not follow in his path, but instead will be a fool. And that that is more explicitly stated a little bit later on in the passage, that who knows whether the person who comes after me is wise or a fool. And so here he seems to be already kind of hinting at where he's going of, I don't know who the person is going to be after me in the sense of what he's going to do. Is he going to pursue wisdom or is he going to be a fool and pursue foolishness? Then he comes to the conclusion, at least an initial conclusion, in verse 13. This is kind of a provisional conclusion, I might say. He says, I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. So, is there any value in pursuing wisdom? He would say, yes, absolutely there is. If we're setting these two side by side and comparing and contrasting wisdom and foolishness, wisdom is so much better than foolishness. It's their opposites. They're like light and day. 
can't even hardly compare them. And so wisdom is much better than foolishness. So this is helpful in understanding Ecclesiastes because some come away from the study of Ecclesiastes thinking it really doesn't matter anything that we do because it's all vanity, it's all meaningless, it's all futility. So what's the point in anything? But verses like this kind of give us a little bit of uh, guidelines, fencing, if you will, on our path of interpretation of Ecclesiastes to remind us that he's not throwing everything out when he says everything is hevel, you know, frustrating, enigmatic. He's not throwing everything out. He's not saying nothing is worthwhile. So if we're comparing wisdom and folly, the choice is obvious. We should pursue wisdom. It's so much better than foolishness. He says, the wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. And here I think he's drawing from some of the proverbial wisdom of the book of Proverbs or even wisdom like we see in Psalm number one. Uh, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. So Psalm 1 compares and contrasts the way of the wise and the way of the fool. And the way of the wise in Psalm 1 is to blessing and honor and life. The way of the fool in Psalm 1 is to dishonor and shame and destruction. He's bringing that that idea, and you see that all through the book of Proverbs. He's bringing that in here when he says the eyes are are the, the wise, they can see. They have a sense of where they're going. There's, there's value to wisdom in this world. But fools, they, they don't even have a clue. They're blind, walking around in darkness. So side by side, wisdom is so much better than foolishness. But remember at the beginning of this section of verses, I, says, I said, wisdom is better than folly. But here's his caveat, if you will. Wisdom is better than folly, but here's the thing that he came to realize. The same fate overtakes them both. Again, before we try to analyze what he's saying here, remember the perspective through which he's viewing all of this in life. The key phrase in Ecclesiastes is under the sun, right? In our worldly, earthly, finite human existence, from what we can see with our eyes, without a God-granted revelation or a spiritual vision of eternity or the afterlife of what comes to those who follow God, just from what we can observe, from what we see in this world and the experiences of people, he says, I came to see in my vision, my examining the world, that both the wise person and the fool have the same fate. And what is that? Death, right? We all die. We all die. He says the same fate overtakes them both. He says, then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. 
What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. Our, our two key words are in that verse. So what then do I gain? Yitrun, there's that key word. Where's the profit? Where's the gain? By being wise. If the same fate that happens to the fool happens to the wise. If we all die, then what's, what's the point in pursuing wisdom? He said this too is meaningless. There's the other key word, hevel. It's, it's confusing. It's enigmatic. It's frustrating. It's, it's something that is hard to understand. So taking the wisdom of Proverbs, of the wise versus the fool, the wise is blessed, has long life, the fool is cursed and suffers destruction. But he says, in my observation of life, I see both the wise and the fool, the same thing happening to both of them. They all die. So how do I reconcile what I'm seeing in the world, what's actually happening with what the wisdom of Proverbs says? How do I, how do I reconcile that together? So is there really any gain in being wise? Now, remember, he, we've, we've not yet reached the conclusion, Right? So if we stop at any point along the way in Ecclesiastes, we might come to the wrong idea of what he's saying. We have to keep going. So a lot of what he says along the way and the conclusions that he draws are provisional. They're, they're, they're stepping stones along this dialogue of wisdom that he's moving toward a, a bigger, a higher conclusion. So in one way of looking at it, there's no advantage to being wise over being a fool because we all die. But that's not the end of the story, is it? There, there's still a bigger picture to look at it from. So he says in verse 16, For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. And we've looked at this already in chapter one, where some would try to put their hope of meaning or of significance in their name or their legacy or their achievements lasting after them. Because we realize that we're going to die, right? So we realize that we're going to die. Everyone realizes that. But some might think, I can have a... I can have meaning or I can have significance. I can have profit or gain, if you will, if my achievements or my legacy is remembered. But we've already seen in Ecclesiastes that that doesn't happen. And here he reminds us of that again because people quickly forget. They forget your legacy. They forget your achievements. They forget what you've done. In fact, sometimes the fool is more easily remembered than the wise person right? Who's the most famous person, or I might say infamous, in the 1940s? 
Who's the first person that came to your mind? Hitler, right? You say World War II, one of the first names that might pop into your head is Adolf Hitler. He was not wise, was he? He was a fool. He was a destructive, murderous fool. But yet, his name's remembered. So, you can't put stock in being remembered or in your legacy because sometimes that is not good either because you're remembered for the wrong things or you're forgotten altogether. So that's not where we can find ultimate gain or profit. So provisionally, wisdom is better than foolishness. If we're comparing There's no doubt that one is better than the other. Even during this life, it will go better for the wise than the fool. So there's value in pursuing wisdom, but here's what we have to realize. It's not everything. Pursuing wisdom in and of itself, as if that were the gain, you have to realize you're still going to die. And that's not the end, the ultimate goal that we're pursuing. Then, in verses 17 to 23, he focuses his attention on our efforts, on our labor. And in these verses, he's going to show us that there is reward for our labor, again, but there are limitations. So he says in verse 17, I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. In a way, I I think what he's doing in verses 12 to 26 is he's kind of rehashing or rethinking about what we've already looked at in chapter 1, verse 12, to chapter 2, verse 11. Because chapter 1, verse 12 to 18, was about wisdom. Well, that's what we just looked at. He's kind of looking at it again. Then chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, was about pleasure or the pursuit of projects and labor. Now he's looking at that again in verses um, in 17 to 23 of this passage. So he's kind of going back again and taking another pass at both wisdom and labor here. So he says, I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. So all those projects that I engaged in, all those beautiful things that I built. He says it was grievous to me. It was empty. It was a chasing after the wind. Again, elusive. It's, you're, you're looking for something. You're seeking for something. You're grasping for something, but you can't get it. It slips through the fingers. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. So going back to chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we saw there that there is some limited joy, some limited meaning, some limited enjoyment in the labors, the things that we do. But it's while we're doing those things. It's, It's a limited enjoyment. It's not the ultimate gain or profit that we're seeking. And here he's reflecting back on those labors, And he brings into it another dimension of 
the futility, the elusiveness of finding profit in those labors. And that thing that he brings into it is the fact that we're going to leave all of that stuff that we've worked for to someone who comes after us. I have to leave it to someone who comes after me. And here I think this is informing that question back in verse 12 that we were wrestling with. What does that question mean? What can the king's successor do more than what has already been done? I think here, this is he's kind of reflecting back on that question. The one who comes after me, I have to leave all of this stuff to him. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So you've heard the phrase, we've all heard the phrase, you can't take it with you, right? He's essentially reflecting on that here. You put all your work, all your effort into building something, you can't take it with you. Think about some of the richest people in the world right now. Who are, who are they? You know, Jeff Bezos, Amazon, uh, Elon Musk, Tesla, Bill Gates, you know, all these people. They're billionaires. Billionaires. I, I can't even imagine spending a billion dollars. I don't, I don't even know what I would spend it on. And they've amassed all of this wealth. But what's going to happen when they die? Someone else who has not put in the effort, who has not put in the same amount of work, who, is, who did not have all the great ideas or the inventions, they're going to get it all, aren't they? They're going to get it all. And who knows, he says, if that person is going to be wise or a fool. Have you ever seen someone win the lottery and win hundreds of millions of dollars and blow it all? You've seen stories of it on the news where someone wins tens or hundreds of millions of dollars and then within just a, a couple of years, it's all gone. How, how can that happen? Where did it all go? And here's kind of that idea, except with the idea of an inheritance, of leaving all this to someone else and they just blow it, they squander it. Where did it all go? It's gone. That person was a fool. So can we really find meaning and significance and profit in building all these great things and acquiring all of this wealth? No, because you can't take it with you and you're just going to leave it to someone who didn't work for it. And that person might even be a fool and totally mismanage it and blow it. He says, this is Hevel. This is frustrating. This is confusing. This is enigmatic. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom and knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? That is, in essence, kind of a rephrasing of the overriding question of Ecclesiastes, going back to chapter 1, verse 3. What do people gain, yitron, profit, gain? What do they get for all their labor under the sun? That's what he's saying here. What do people get for all the toil 
and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun. So effort and work and sweat and blood and tears and time and frustration, all that we do during this life, what does it ultimately get us? He says, all their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at nights, even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. So some people work hard and they're not even enjoying it while they're working for it. They're not getting any enjoyment out of it whatsoever. And there's no ultimate reward or gain in it in the end. So what's, what's he driving at? Where is he bringing us? In the next few verses, he wants to try to put some things into perspective. And this is the first of a few passages that we'll see in Ecclesiastes that people have called carpe diem passages, where after looking at kind of the frustration and the emptiness of these different pursuits, he says, but here's what I'm recommending that we do in this life. Kind of a a seize the day. He says, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too I see is from the hand of God. There are two ways of reading these passages, at least two ways, these carpe diem passages. One way of reading it is kind of more pessimistic of there's really really nothing that we have to work for. There's really no value. There's no profit. There's no gain. So we might as well do this. That's one way of of reading it. I I take a more of an optimistic, positive view of these passages and that he is showing us that even though life is complex and it's frustrating and it's confusing and it is a chasing after the wind at many times, that yet God in his common grace has gifted us with uh, the opportunity to enjoy certain things in life. And as long as we remember that those things are not the ultimate gain, the ultimate reward that we're searching for, we can have limited uh, joy, enjoyment out of those things. And, And they're gifts from God. He says these are from the hand of God. So I take more of a positive, optimistic view that, uh, and it's really a more of a positive, optimistic view of, of the created realm, of the created world. And that God has given us food and we can enjoy that food. He's given us drink and we can enjoy that drink. He's given us spouses and, and marriage and companions and we can enjoy our spouses we can enjoy friendship. We can, these are things that God has given to us to enjoy in this world. As long as we remember that they're not the ultimate gain or profit that we're after. So there are good gifts from God in the midst of this life under the sun. So he says, eat and drink and find satisfaction in your labor. And this is a gift of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? So in a way, I think what he's saying, I think this will become clearer as we move through Ecclesiastes. One way to enjoy these good gifts is 
to realize that they're not the ultimate. It's almost like if you're putting all of your focus and all of your energies and all of your meaning and significance into this one thing, it's going to let you down, isn't it? So if you're putting your whole life into your career, of building your career and big salary and you know rising up the corporate chain and getting titles and recognition and, and moving upwards in your career, if that is your goal, then you might achieve that, but it's still going to let you down in terms of finding meaning and satisfaction in your life. If, you're, if your goal in life and everything you're pouring yourself into is just having a good time and enjoying the pleasures of this world, alcohol, sex, drugs, whatever, just whatever makes me feel good, that's what I'm pouring my life into, it's going to leave you empty, hollow inside. Whatever it is in this world under the sun that you're putting all of your eggs into that basket, if you will, of this is where I'm going to find my meaning, my profit, my gain, it's going to let you down. But by releasing those things and realizing from his point of view, from wisdom, that those things are not ultimate gain and reward, then you can enjoy them, realizing that they're not the ultimate answer to all of life. And he says, I, I think that's a gift of God. That God not only grants the food and the drink and the spouse and the friendships and the labor, but he also in his grace provides the ability to enjoy them along the way. Realizing that they're not the ultimate thing that we're after. So he says in verse 26, to the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness but to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And here he's bringing into, he's kind of hinting at where he's going to go next, which in chapter three, he's going to bring into the discussion, the providential hand of God. That in all these things that we pursue and the different aspects of life that we're engaged in, one thing that we have to remember and one thing that we cannot control is God's guidance of all of these things by his providential hand. And so here he says, it, we, we can't control when we die. We can't control whether the person who comes after us is a wise person or a fool. We can't control whether or not the person who inherits all of our efforts and, and wealth that we've built as a wise person or a fool. There are some things that we can't control. We can't control if we die young or old. So a gift of God along the way is just to enjoy the opportunities, the blessings, the small gifts that he gives us and to see those as gifts from his hand, realizing that they're not the ultimate meaning of life the ultimate thing that we're after. So here are some concluding thoughts from this passage that we've looked at tonight. We should pursue wisdom because it is better than foolishness, isn't it? It is so much better than foolishness, but we must also realize that death comes to the wise and the fool. And 
wisdom in and of itself is not ultimately what we are seeking for. I think one of the things he's going to show us along the way is that wisdom is the path. Wisdom is not the destination. And that's a key difference, isn't it? Wisdom is the path, but wisdom is not the destination. So in the opening part of chapter, of chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's been looking at wisdom as the destination. And he's saying, it's not it. Wisdom is not the destination. But wisdom is so valuable as a part of the path along the way. So we should pursue wisdom. Just realize that it's the path, not the destination. And we're still going to die. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that to face judgment. Both the wise and the fool die. Both the believer and the unbeliever die. But there's still value in pursuing wisdom. I think another idea from this passage is we can find satisfaction and reward in our work and our efforts, but we must realize that those benefits are fleeting. They don't last. Someone else is going to take over the fruit of our labors. We're going to die and leave it all behind and someone else is going to inherit it. So we can enjoy it in a finite, limited sense as long as we're not putting everything into it, our whole life and existence and meaning into it because it's going to go to somebody else. So it is worthwhile to pursue wisdom and live a wise life. It is worthwhile to give our time and efforts to quality work but these will not bring us eternal profit. These also cannot hold off death, which overtakes us all. So there's something more still coming, isn't there? Again, think of Ecclesiastes as a dialogue on wisdom, that he doesn't reach the final period, the final conclusion until the end. So he's bringing us along the way And we're thinking about all these different things, but we're not yet at the final conclusion of all these things. But along the way, we have some small conclusions, some some small tidbits of wisdom. Pursue labor and building things and doing things with quality and excellence and enjoy that while you have that opportunity. Just realize that that's limited and it's fleeting and it's going to go to somebody else. Pursue wisdom but just realize you're still going to die just like the fool and realize that wisdom is the path, not the destination. And so I hope that this is encouraging to us. And, and really, I think all of Ecclesiastes is about perspective. It's about perspective. It's about reframing the way that we look at the world from God's point of view. And that's really what wisdom is, isn't it? Wisdom is, is looking at life. It's looking at God's creation from the creator's point of view. He's the one who made it. He's the one who designed it. So we should read his instruction manual to help us navigate through this world. And that's what he's seeking to do in Ecclesiastes. Let's bow together and pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have given us this wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. And Father, we admit that as we read through it, there are some things that are perplexing to us, things that are hard to understand. Uh, And uh, we can identify a lot with uh, what 
he is revealing to us about how life is fleeting, about how our efforts and labors uh, are ultimately passed on to someone else after us. Father, there's so much here that is helpful to us, especially when we look at it from a, a larger picture of the wisdom of your word. And so, Lord, I pray that this study would continue to be helpful to us in our growth and wisdom. And Lord, as you've told us to do, uh, we ask for it. We seek it. We desire, Father, that you would give us your wisdom. And so, Lord, continue to teach us and mold us into the image of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.